Hello, and welcome to Lines from Loganberry, from Loganberry Books. We are a local independent bookshop located in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. With this podcast, we hope to stay connected to you as we weather the coronavirus storm together. Each week, we will help you discover new books, rave about our latest favorite reads, and check in with our friendly bookstore cat Otis to learn more about what's going on in our humble shop. For more information about Loganberry Books, visit our website at loganberrybooks.com or check our social media at Loganberry Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On today's episode, Local Voices Manager Maisha Hedden interviews Gorilla Keeper Beth Armstrong to discuss her memoir, Voices from the Ape House, viewing in retrospect her career at the Columbus Zoo in the 1970s, and how the radical example her team set to improve how gorillas are treated in captivity affected her own outlook on the world. Voices from the Ape House can be purchased at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links included in the episode description. Thank you for listening and enjoy. So today for our Intellect and Inspiration series, we're speaking to Beth Armstrong, author of Voices from the Ape House. Beth is in the Intellect and Inspiration series because she used her intellect to serve almost as an apprentice, working in a practical matter to learn uh, the secret of the great apes, and also inspiration because Beth is self-taught and draws her inspiration from the natural environment through conservation and helping people who are working in their communities to uh, promote conservation. Beth worked in gorilla husbandry eventually serving as the head gorilla keeper at the Columbus Zoo from 1982 to 1996. During this time that Columbus Zoo transformed to one of the best rated zoos in the United States, Beth became Columbus Zoo's first field conservationist, saving species around the world and supporting community-based conservation in places such as Guatemala and India. Beth is an inspiration because her educational path was non-traditional. She received her bachelor's degree in anthropology in her late 20s, but continued her practical education in great apes and gorillas throughout the world, such as in Appenhuel, if I pronounce that right, Amsterdam. Beth Armstrong, welcome to Loganberry. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> you are welcome. So Beth, I'd like to start by having you read a passage that I found particularly compelling uh, from your chapter called Rebels, where you essentially give your call to arms about working with gorillas. And also you give a kind of interesting background of what it means to be an Armstrong about the, uh, the heritage of your family last name. Could you read that passage for us? Okay. I hope I have the right one. Um, is this the one where you're talking about training new gorillas? Yes. When okay. training new gorilla keepers. Yes. Okay. When training new gorilla keepers, I say to each and every one, hoping to instill in them this fundamental thought, you are their voice. These animals can't waltz over to the zoo director's office or attend a national zoo conference to articulate their concerns. It is an intrinsic duty for every single keeper to push back against the status quo and to push for improvements. Your most important job is to be their advocate. So Beth, as I was reading through your book, Voices of the Ape House, that's what I came away with, that um, this was way more than a job for you, that you were an advocate for the gorillas. 
You talk about a special connection that you had early in your career when you were still working part-time at Columbus Zoo with a gorilla named Bongo. And also you described uh, the horror, I think you opened it in your prologue, of wild-caught gorillas. So can you talk to the audience about Bongo and also um, the scary and I think to a lot of people, unknown history of how gorillas are caught in the wild? Sure. So, you know, bear in mind that when I started at the Columbus Zoo as a volunteer around 79, 80, and then eventually was taken on board as a keeper, many of the animals that I worked with were wild caught. Now that doesn't happen anymore and it hasn't happened in decades. And I want to make that really clear. But, but what did occur at the time that I was at Columbus in the early 80s was because many of these animals had come from the wild, they all carried this history with them. And their history was that they had been captured from the wild. And back in the day, in the 50s and the 60s, when baby gorillas were brought in from the wild, what occurred was is that the mother would be killed. The father protecting the baby would be killed and numerous other group members would be killed. And it was quite horrific. And um, as you can imagine, as putting ourselves in their position, what, how that would affect us. And I think, again, that informed my sensibility of working with gorillas is knowing that many of the gorillas that I was working with at that time in the early 80s had been captured from the wild. So they brought that history with them. And so that made me very sensitive, and not just me, others in my position, very sensitive to what these animals had been through. Um, so that informed the way I think I at least approached gorilla husbandry, and the way I dealt with gorillas or worked with gorillas is, is a better way of saying it. Um, and that sort of fueled for me and others in my position the need for great change within zoological institutions in the early, starting in the early 1980s, that we needed to make great changes in order to improve their lives in captivity, not only because of the way they were living at the time, which was quite stark and sterile environments, but because of what their history had been and what they had gone through and that they deserved whatever peace or quiet time that they could have or sense of self or sense of family that we could, that we could give them in a captive setting. And that's, that's what I meant by that passage in the book, that every keeper that I ever trained, you are in essence their voice and you have to be willing to, get to, to push back a bit um, and I know we, would we may cover this later, but, but I do want to bring up that, that working at the zoo at that time, it was such an unusual place to work because of the management style, because we were listened to, because we were taken seriously in our concerns and in our wanting to make great changes for gorillas, not just at Columbus, but certainly starting at Columbus, but hoping that those changes that we could make would somehow reverberate out into the greater zoo world and, and would create a greater change for gorillas in captivity. It's one of the extraordinary parts of your story that it's not just about gorillas, it's also about, it's about organizational management. It's also, I mean, it could almost be used yeah. as a management guide as well about what to do, you, almost like a book, like um, from good to great. Like, how is it that you move from good to great, which is what happened to Columbus Zoo during the almost two years that you were there. Now, I know from our previous conversations that you love the stories about the gorillas. 
I want to ask you again about about Bongo because you talk about how the gorilla keepers have to share the stories, right? It's the stories that move people, the conservation, and conservation isn't inexpensive. And as we see even in the news today about um, Chinese poaching of, of jaguars, it's also dangerous, right? There are conservations out, out there risking their lives to keep animals in the wild. Tell us about Bongo. It was a, it was a really moving chapter when, I mean, he's, he's a recurring, <laughs> in a sense, he's a recurring, he's a recurring person in your story yes. about, almost as you describe it, like the, the melancholy um, that you see in his eyes. Yeah, I think for me, Bongo was, um, gosh, probably in his mid to, I don't know, mid-20s, probably when I first started working with him. He was quite magnificent looking, beautiful, beautiful animal. Um, he had been captured from, from the wild. So again, he carried that history with him. He had been a uh, mate to Colo, the first gorilla that uh, was born in captivity and was born at the Columbus Zoo in 1956. They had been mates for years. Um, they had three offspring together. They were all pulled for hand rearing back in the late 60s um, and 1971. It was 68, 69, and 71 when they had their kids. So he also had that history. And so and he also lived in a very sterile environment at the time. Um, so he had a great deal to do with how I approached this because I felt such a sense of obligation to everything that he had gone through and continued to go through in a captive setting um, until, again, Jack Hanna came along and really kind of turned everything upside down and really made a huge difference for these animals. But he was a wonderful animal. He was very funny. He could be very, very playful, but he could be very withdrawn as, as we are, you know, when we're having a bad day, he could be very quiet and introspective. And um, I don't know why it is. Why is it that there are certain people that we feel a kinship with and there are certain animals we feel a kinship with. And that was the case with Bongo for me. He just was a magnificent looking silverback, fully adult male gorilla who had gone through quite tragic uh, life, quite honestly. Um, and, and I felt, I don't know what, I, I felt a sense of uh, wanting to make a difference really for him, that he deserved so much more. And, and that I think, again, going back to eventually writing the book, for me, the book was about telling the gorilla story, telling Bongo's story in particular, because I wanted people to know that his life mattered, that irregardless of anything having to do with us humans, it didn't, it wasn't in relation to us. It was just he alone, what he did, what he went through, what he eventually had with raising his own youngster at, at Columbus, his own son, that he mattered in the big scheme of life that his life mattered and what he went through mattered and that he was, he was perhaps a lesson to us humans to be maybe a bit more humble in our approach to nature and to the wonders of different species on this planet. So you often anthropomorphize gorillas. I mean, just now you describe Bongo as being funny and throughout the book, you say some of the gorillas are finicky or introspective. You say sometimes they're pissed off you describe them as polite and gentle and some as quite exacting. 
And mm-hmm. so I'd like to know, why do you anthropomorphize gorillas, both from a scientific perspective and also your personal emotional perspective? Yeah, I don't see. I look at it like this. I'm just I'm really just passing on what I what I observed. It's not it's not intending to make them more human like. And I think it, it is actually just saying this is who they are. This is what I witnessed. This is what we witnessed as, as gorilla keepers at Columbus. You know, very individual personalities with very individual tastes and very individual friendships that they preferred other over other troop members. Or maybe they preferred certain keepers. They were closer to other keepers than others. It, it's simply, I think sometimes it's hard for people, for humans to to step back a little bit and understand that we are not the only sentient beings on this planet, that, that there are, there are species all over that form friendships that have feelings that feel pain, that have emotional pain, that have very individual personalities that can be quirky, that can be enormously funny, that can be, you know, I looked at Bongo truthfully and he was sort of this being that, if you were to meet this person as a human, that you wanted them to respect you. you. You wanted them to give you the sort of nod that, oh, okay, you're okay. That's how much respect I had for Bongo. Because he could definitely put you in his place with a glance. <laughs> so um, actually, that's, um, that brings up an interesting point. Like I, being a word person, I really relished the use of the word husbandry. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's an old word and you yeah, call it, it gorilla husbandry like why why do you call it that and i'm thinking about something you just said about that we're not the only sentient beings on this planet and yet we are engaged in husbandry of these animals so how do you how do you use that word how, what does it mean to you well, it may be just something as simple as that is just sort of a catchphrase that, that coming up in the zoo world that, that was used just across the board. Um, I don't get so wrapped up in, in the word, but more for, for us at Columbus, it was, it was about action. It was about what are we going to do? I mean, at the core of that gorilla program was, what are we going to do to give these animals what they need? And we understand that it's in a captive setting. We know that's limiting. But what do they need that will allow them to behave as closely in, you know, as closely mirroring what they would see with their wild counterparts? What do we need to do to give them in captivity so that they can just plain be gorillas? That they don't really need us, that, they, that we have to give them the basics, food, bedding, you know, whatever else, you know, medical care. But that in general, they figure out their own issues within their own troops, their own group settings, and that they raise their own babies and that they discipline juveniles in relation to babies and that they... They have their friends, you know, they pick other troop members that they pal around with, that it's really not our business other than giving them a safe, private, quiet, comfortable environment so that they can just be gorillas. So action. Yeah. It's your book on gorillas, but it's also your book on organizational management, change management, leadership. Yeah. So 
with that, can you read a passage for us from Chapter 9 on leadership? For most people listening to this program in the state of Ohio, they'll know that Jack Hanna had leadership of the Columbus Zoo. And during this period of its remarkable uh, transformation, it was his leadership that was an integral part of what Beth will eventually talk about, about redesigning the gorilla habitat and also redesigning the way that gorilla keepers integrated gorilla societies in their complex social structures. So with that, can you read for us, Jack Believed in People? Sure. Jack Believed in People. Without that belief in and respect for the gorilla keeper staff's knowledge, absolutely none of the positive husbandry practices implemented at the Columbus Zoo would have occurred. Jack taught me what true leadership is, a do-the-right-thing philosophy without thought of how it would benefit you as an individual or whether it was the latest in zoo trends. Leadership was all about making a difference. Jack created an environment that allowed questioning the status quo, not in a confrontational manner, but rather in a practical and logical fashion. He created an environment where ideas flowed from a more thoughtful perspective. So his leadership style flowed from the top, but then it also seemed that um, it got down to every single department, as it were. Talk about the team of four that you worked with as well, because it sounds like that it sounds like you worked with a remarkable group of four women when you were going about making these changes to both the habitat and to how the gorillas were socialized. You talk sure. about the kitchen table and then and the and the front bench. Yeah, so th- so the four of us. It was myself and the head keeper at the time, Diana Fresh, Charlene Gendry, and Adele Apsey, and. And truthfully, you know, sometimes you just land in a, in a place where all the right, right people are there. And so what we were able to do is come together and throw ideas out. And, and it, often this would take place, say, after the morning cleaning and feeding, and we would sit down and have a cup of coffee at the kitchen table in the ape house. And, and somebody would say, hey, I've been thinking about this. What do you think about this idea? And then, and then we'd sort of mash over the idea, look at the pros and cons. Yeah, this would be possible. What if we tried this? What if we changed this? What if we added this bedding? What if we changed the diet this way? And so between the four of us, you know, we could work out, again, the, the pros and cons of any given new idea, come up with a strategy, and then implement um, how we were going to approach this our, our curator would come in and we'd sit with Don Winstall and, and say, okay, here's our, we would have this all well thought out, written out. What do you think about us doing this? And it could be a major change in an exhibit design, or it could be adding to the exhibit or how we were going to approach a new introduction of a newly arrived female. All of those things all came into play. And I think it was the push, the back and forth. And we didn't always agree on things, but, but, for the most part, we did, and we figured out implementation and a sort of strategy of how to, to move forward with any major changes within the Ape House. But 
at the core of all of this was we all four of us understood that the gorillas would always steer us in the right direction. They would always tell us what wasn't working for them. And it was our obligation, our job to listen to them and back off and say, hey, this isn't working. You know, this female is trying to tell us she's not interested in taking that baby, for instance. Even though she may have been an adoptive mother with another infant prior to that, maybe this time around something was happening in her group and she was no longer interested, at least at this point in time, of being an adoptive mother. So we we always had to listen to the gorillas to tell us when to move, how fast to move, and when to back off. And... They and were so always part, right. And so part of the way that you learn this, right, that the gorillas will lead you, the gorillas will guide you, was the time that you spent in Amsterdam. And yeah. it sounds like one of the things that you learned was that a happy gorilla is a playful gorilla. So you took a lot of ideas about how to reform gorilla habitat from your time studying inside of Amsterdam. So. Mm-hmm. Can you talk to us about how you changed gorilla habitat, the ape house, in the Columbus Zoo, which um, I want the audience members to know at the time was a completely radical concept. Yeah. So the place that I studied at is actually about an hour uh, east of Amsterdam. I lived in Amsterdam when I was there in Holland. It's called Oppenhill. And it's this amazing facility where they had, they had had mother rearing for for ages, you know, moms and dads were raising babies, big troops, uh, juveniles were in the group, infants were being born into the group. It was everything that we wanted to do at Columbus. And there's one other place, the UK was doing the same thing and had been for decades. And we had based our outdoor exhibit, the big cage structure on Hallett's. And that was a huge change when it was open in 84 because at the time zoos were very trending towards naturalistic exhibits meaning they were putting gorillas outside on kind of big flat slabs of grass and we felt that a that a three-dimensional exhibit would work better for gorillas it worked for the place Hallett's in the in the United Kingdom, and we followed their lead. Diana, our head keeper at the time, went over and with a, an architect and our vet worked with them on how to design our outdoor exhibit. So by '84, we already had this great exhibit that worked for gorillas, and it worked for gorillas because it was three dimensional, and that allowed for gorillas to have choices within a troop. Meaning, if there was something say there was a fight that, or an altercation that might be occurring in one part of the exhibit, you weren't just on a, they weren't just on a flat substrate. They actually had options to go up and get away from any kind of altercation within their troop if they didn't want to be involved. And so the point of a three-dimensional exhibit is it gives gorillas choices of where they want to be in relation to their other troop members. So we started with that. And then when I went to Oppenhill in the Netherlands, they had loads of climbing structure in their exhibits, which again added other dimensional aspects to any given exhibit. They had um, bedding all the time. Every day there were big piles of tree limbs put in for the, for the gorillas to strip and eat and make bedding with and or make nests with. They had juveniles and again, infants within groups. So I was able for the first time to see a really normal gorilla troop in captivity as it should be. 
with a lot of age diversity, a lot of females, a silverback male. And so all those ideas and their diets were different from ours. So when I came back from Apinil, we started to incorporate a lot of those changes. And honestly, it's just common sense. It's not... It's, it's not, you know, again, Oppenhol may not have the most beautiful exhibit, indoor exhibit in the world, but we didn't, that's, that's not the point. The exhibit design was brilliant. And we ended up, when we built the second gorilla exhibit at Columbus, uh, which was an indoor exhibit, we, we based it on Oppenhol because it works for gorillas. So, yeah, we incorporated a lot of what I learned at Oppenhol into what we did. But also, you know, my other fellow keepers were reading and they were, they were exploring as well. So we were just looking at our gorilla exhibit as we would walk into a to an enclosure that was sort of didn't have any climbing structures. It didn't have any hand or footholds on the wall for them to utilize to get away. Um, and we would place ourselves in there and look at each other okay, and say, okay, how would I feel? Would I get stuck in a corner over there or a corner over there? Would I feel trapped? And so we thought, if I were in this exhibit, I would like to have um, mechanisms on the wall that would allow me to climb up and above my fellow gorillas in case there were a, they, somebody was coming after me or not. Or I just didn't want to be around them. And, or made it easier just to climb up a wall. And so we just kept adding these very common sense, three-dimensional aspects to the exhibit. And that gave gorillas choices. And that was the, that was the point. We wanted them to have choices as to how they conducted their daily lives with one another. I have a question for you about you. Mm-hmm. One of the things that jumped out in your memoir and also your stories of the gorilla is that, you know, you never did get rich doing this. <laughs> that when you first came to Columbus Zoo, you worked there for two years part-time, and eventually you had to actually spend a, a brief period over at the children's zoo. Yeah, right? I, I so worked, the, yeah. So that you could get uh, full health care benefits in this extraordinary excursion and learning event that you took at Oppenhill that you paid for that out of pocket. Yeah. So how did you, how did you emotionally balance that? Like to have this thing that you were incredibly committed to that was not lucrative because you had to make some choices. Yeah. Well, I, I, You know, I tell, when I give lectures, especially to sort of up-and-coming people in the zoo world, that that I often tell them, look, you're going to have to make sacrifices. There are several things I tell them. Read everything you can get your hands on. Watch everything, every documentary you can think of. You know, don't be afraid to approach people at conferences that you might think are um, sort of a big deal in the zoo world or the conservation world. They're just people. And... 99% 99% of the times they want it, they, they welcome somebody asking them a question. Don't be intimidated. Um, and, and constantly be curious, but also be willing to volunteer your time. Don't expect anything in return. Just keep accumulating this knowledge. And for me, yeah, I mean, it was a financial sacrifice to, to go over to Apano because I wasn't paid to do it and I had to pay my own way. But I also looked at it this way. Columbus Zoo didn't have to let me go. I mean, I was a full-time keeper at that point. And the, the group of people that I worked with in the children's zoo area, you know, that was a big ask of them. They were going to have to cover for me. I think the zoo hired a part-time person to cover for me while I was gone. Um, you know, 
the zoo did not have to allow me to leave. And again, I go back to that sense of leadership where they recognize people on staff that just want to keep learning and want to, for the benefit of the, of the animals in their care, really. So I, I tell everybody that I can that when you're coming up through the ranks, be willing to make that financial sacrifice. You know, if you have to work a second job, work a second job to get that extra money to go to put, send yourself to conferences. And maybe your institution won't pay for you to go, or maybe you'll have to take your vacation time. But, but that passion to learn, to make a difference, you have to invest in that. And I just felt very, very strongly about where I worked and how privileged I was to work at such an innovative and forward-thinking zoo led by Jack and working with my colleagues who were, we were all so open to changes. I mean, what a blessing that was. Most people never get that opportunity in their life. So again, maybe you make sacrifices, but in the, in the end, um, to me, it was really about how is this going to affect animals and how is this going to affect gorillas most you know in particular um and it was worth any kind of any kind of sacrifice so you took everything that you learned and this sort of blessing of the time period at columbus zoo and you brought it out into the world through conservation i don't think i really understood what conservation was until i read your book so for our listeners can you can you describe like what what do you mean by conservation as opposed to working at a zoo? How does zoo work and how do zoo work and conservation connect? And also how are they different? Well, I think every zoo and aquarium has an obligation to support field work around the world. And those are, those can be community-based education programs in another country Those can be regional projects within, you know, central Ohio, for instance. Um, They can be supporting veterinary care or sanctuary care for particular animals. It can be somebody doing a study that's working with uh, forest elephants in Republic of Congo or Gabon or wherever. We, as zoological institutions, talk about how important these animals are. And for years, you know, when I was coming up through the zoo, a lot of zoos used the verbiage, you know, these are these animals in captivity are their ambassador, are the ambassadors for their wild counterparts. Well, at Columbus, we believed very strongly that you got you have to walk the walk. And if you say you believe in protecting these animals in wild places and protecting wild ecosystems, then you have to commit And that means a financial commitment. That means staff commitment and infrastructure commitment. But these people that are on the front lines in whatever country around the world, they need your support. And and what you get in return by supporting them is you establish these long-term amazing relationships. And they share with you stories of what they have to go through to protect these particular species in the wild. Those stories then can be used through video and pictures and their actual stories or quotes from the field people to be in the signage at your zoo or aquarium, to let your members know that you are truly a committed conservation organization. And every zoo and aquarium has to do that. I mean, that is just, and again, I was so 
lucky, all of us were so lucky to work at a zoo that Columbus was really considered to be a major force for, for zoos supporting conservation starting in the early 1990s because we just got on with the business of it. And, and we, we hosted meetings and we promoted this idea that zoos have got to commit a portion of their budget. They have to commit their staff. They have to understand that the power is in the doing, not in the talking about, but the doing. I have to say that part of your background that I love is that you live this principle of action and implementation, and it's about the doing. I have to confess that I am always very suspicious of people who are always going back for another degree because I'm like, okay, do you want to study what you're doing or do you want to go do what you're doing? And you are clearly a person throughout your life who decided, you know, just I'm going to do it. I'll go to school at night. In the meantime, I'm going to be taking care of gorillas. That's one of the kind of amazing things about you. Yeah. Um, And I, you know, I, let me just say real quickly that I had, I had gone to university when I was about 23 and totally flubbed it up. Truthfully, I was scared to death. I I didn't have a lot of confidence in myself. Ohio State University campus was huge. I found that intimidating. But when I was 30, my brothers, one was 31 and one was 28. And we were hanging out together at Christmas at my parents' house. And, and they were both back in school and they were both married and they had kids. And I remember looking at them and thinking, huh, if those guys can do it, I can do it. And it was just like the light bulb went off. And I never looked back. I knew that I was going to spend four years going, for the most part, going to night school as much as I could possibly uh, while, I, while I worked at the zoo. And, and I was ready for it at the age of 30. I wasn't ready for it at 20, 23. But at 30, and by the time I was 34, I had graduated with a bachelor's degree, which made it even sweeter because it was hard won and it was hard fought. And and I also think that that practical experience that I already had under my belt dealing with primates um, and gorillas in particular combined with a bachelor's degree was a good thing. And I really appreciated, perhaps I appreciated it more because I did it later in life. So it's never, ever, ever too late. I tell that to young people all the time or people in their 40s or 50s, it's never too late. If you feel like you need to go get a degree and it's always bothered you, go back and get it. But think about all the great practical experience you've gotten in your life so far and then you know, combine that with a degree. It's, it's kind of an unstoppable combo. Well, I know from uh, my time uh, teaching at Tri-C that um, non-traditional students who came to school later were actually absolutely invaluable inside the classroom. I know. Because like, of their practical experience. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so in one of our previous conversations, you talked about conservation and the most mm-hmm. topical thing we can talk about these days, which is COVID-19, um, that you yeah. kind of see a connection between these two. Talk to us a little bit about it. Well, I'm, I'm, I mean, this is absolutely, this was not, those of you that, that may read about pandemics, I'm, a, I'm kind of a pandemic freak. I've always been interested in that kind of stuff. And there's a wonderful book I would recommend by Lori Garrett, written about 25 years ago called The Coming Plague. And it's a fascinating read about viruses. And, and I do think that COVID-19 or something similar to it, it was not a matter of of if it was going to happen, but when it was going to happen. And, you know, and what, what we're finding is 
is we go further and further into pristine ecosystems and we bring out animals, not only going in and destroying ecosystems, but then we bring out animals that humans consume, that it's inevitable that zoonotic diseases are going to be passed, that viruses are going to go from perhaps a host animal into another, perhaps a domesticated animal, maybe in another wild animal, and then that's consumed by a human, and then there you go. That's how pandemics can start. And I think the one thing I will say is that I, I hope as horribly tragic as this is with so so much loss of life that this this lockdown time that we've gone through i hope that people start to understand that we are interconnected with nature we do not hold domain over nature she will mother nature in the end will always and i don't want to use the word win but but she's she's the dominant one and, and we have to learn to respect and uh, protect and understand that we are part of the system, but that we certainly don't control the system. And, and I am hoping, again, I'm, I'm seeing more people out walking in parks. I see it seems like people are starting to get into bird watching, which I think is a great bridge for uh, urban and suburban people to reconnect with nature. And so... You know, I'm, I'm hoping that this, what's happening in the world is giving people a heads up of, wait a minute, let's, let's start examining our role as, as humans uh, within the greater world, which is all the nature that surrounds us and perhaps will create in each of us sort of a, an awe for and a love of, of nature. That was so beautifully said, and I think in many ways it kind of wraps up your life works. Aww. <laughs> it was, it was beautifully said. So let's move on to our Loganberry standard questions. So yeah. I guess I, uh, in our previous conversations, I did a little bit of cheating. I definitely would love for you to describe your favorite writing location. Um, okay. I, I have a room in my house that overlooks the street, but it's a very, um, it's a very charming street with a lot of very New Englandy looking buildings. And there's a tree that's right outside my window. And it's beautiful right now. It's just all leafed out and I'll see birds in it. I can see the sky. Um, it's kind of a guest bedroom, but it's been made into my writing area. Um, that's kind of my favorite space. I'm a, I'm a bit of a homebody, and I, I like making cozy spaces. So this is a very cozy space to write. And I just get in my comfy chair, and that's where I did a lot of my editing of the book and rewriting of the book, was just sitting by the window and redoing, rewriting, and also just glancing out, looking, looking outside through the trees. I think that this should be interesting. I hope you've had a chance to think about it. What three people, living or dead, would you invite to a dinner party? And I guess in your case, I have to say, they don't necessarily have to be people. (laughs) Oh, that's, I never thought of that. Oh, it would be nice to see Bongo again. I'll be honest with you. Um, But, you know, the weird thing is, I thought about this, and I... I would probably have 
I would have my father and my grandmother and my Irish great great grandmother. Um, and I'm not, I think because I think they'd be thrilled about this book, but I think as importantly, I, I, they were storytellers and my grandmother was a storyteller. My father was a great storyteller in his own way. in his very wry, funny way. Um, and then I've always been curious about my Irish background on that side of the family. Um, I mean, I can think about other people, colleagues, of course. I mean, but I, I think it would be probably those family members. So you're saying you wouldn't invite the unruly Armstrongs? Oh, God Almighty! That was a great story. I always, I always found that interesting. Uh, Well, and I will say that when I saw that quote, and I don't know where I saw that quote about the English Parliament or the Scottish Parliament, what they said about the Armstrongs on the border, and I just thought it was so eloquently, in a funny way, you know, kind of like, ugh. What a oh my God! They're just trouble, and I I just I loved that. Yeah. <laughs> and then, can you tell us what are your highs and what are your lows? Like, what brings you the most joy, and what what gets you down sometimes? I think you know what I think. I think that when I go for my walks every day, and I think that's I'll, I'll say that to anybody who's out there that's a writer or wants to be a writer, is write your stuff and then go for a walk. It, you'll work things out in your head, but you also come up with really creative ideas. I think one of my highs, and it's very, it took me decades to learn this, that it's, it's the simplest of things. It's for me, probably when I go on my walk and I see, uh, you know, a bluebird or a squirrel's doing something goofy or um, just anything having to do with nature, the changing the colors of the leaves throughout the year, the way snow sounds and feels when you're walking through it. Um, I think going out in nature and walking, and it can be in your neighborhood. It doesn't have to be like you have to drive to go way out in the country, although I do love to do that. Um, that's. I think there is grace to be found in the everyday. And I think it's that quiet grace where you see something that's so beautiful on your walk that you just stop for a moment and think, how, how fortunate am I to have witnessed that today? It's a very quiet grace is the only way. And I also would say that, that I get a huge kick out of my nieces and nephews. I'm very close with them and they crack me up and they're good people. And I'm, I really, that would be a big high for me is, is just whenever they happen to text their aunt Beth or tell me they're reading last week, my niece called and she goes, Oh, aunt Beth, I'm reading Lonesome Dove. And I was so excited for her because I think it's such a grand book. Um, those are my highs. I think my lows are, I, I worry about what we as a human species, what we haven't realized, that we need to know where we belong in this, in this great, big, wonderful, beautiful planet we live on. And I worry that it's still that greed, that the almighty dollar seems to be the mover and shaker for many people. Although, again, I think in the last few months, I think people are starting to stop and say, who are we and what is really important? Is it, maybe I kind of like being at home more and baking bread and being creative and uh, going for walks in the neighborhood. So yeah, I, I, I worry about that, that we've, we've still not understood that we live in such a 
we live on such a beautiful planet and and i think we we take it for granted and that that does worry me it is a beautiful planet and it is, isn't it it is it's an amazing it's an amazing amazing planet definitely worth saving and plus we don't have another one right <laughs> Not yet, anyway. I know. And I, I, I mean, I'm literally looking out this window in my writing room that I just described, and I see a Japanese maple across the street, and then this beautiful beech tree in front of me, and I'm thinking, well, it just doesn't get any prettier. What a pretty view this is. And, and I just am so hopeful that people are going to reset and have been forced to take the time to slow down and understand that it that it's the little things, it's the beauty that surrounds us that really informs us. Well, Beth, I think that your book, Voices from the Ape House, is going to be a a certain step to getting people to reconsider the environment and reconsider the world that we live in. So, Beth Armstrong, conservationist, aunt, and writer, thank you so much. (laughs) This was beautiful. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much. Loganberry Books is open to the public Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. You can order books from us at store.loganberrybooks.com with specific links to the books discussed in this episode included in the episode description. You can also order from us by calling the store directly at 216-795-9800 or by emailing books at logan.com with your specific requests. You can support us by purchasing through our affiliate pages on bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash Loganberry Books at loganberry.papertrail.com for digital ebooks or on libro.fm for all your audiobook needs. Join our listener support program where you can donate as little as 99 cents a month, less than $12 a year, to keep this podcast going. Go to our website at loganberrybooks.com, check our social media at Loganberry Books, and make sure to rate and subscribe to Lines from Loganberry and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Lines from Loganberry was produced and edited by Ted Hubish. As always, tune in next week for more bookish content from Loganberry Books. Thank you for listening. <laughs>